0: To Shingles. Age isn't just a number. Do you have patients 50 or older? They're at higher risk of getting shingles. Don't wait. Talk about Shingrix with your patients over 50 today. Shingrix is indicated for the prevention of herpes zoster (HZ) or shingles in adults 50 years of age or older. Consult the product monograph at gsk.ca/shingrix/pm for contraindications, warnings and precautions, adverse reactions, interactions, dosing and administration information. To request a product monograph or to report an adverse event, please call 1-800-387-7374. Learn more at thinkshingrix.ca.
1: I'm Dr. Andreas Lopakis, the Editor-in-Chief for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. And today I'm talking to Peter Blake and Rebecca Cooper, who are two of the authors of a research article published today in CMAJ about COVID-19 and patients on long-term dialysis in Ontario. Rebecca is the Director of Clinical Programs, and Peter is a nephrologist and the Provincial Medical Director of the Ontario Renal Network, which is part of Ontario Health. I've reached Peter in London, Ontario, and Rebecca in Toronto. Welcome to both of you. Hi. Thank you. The general internist, I've cared for quite a number of people on dialysis. And dialysis units honestly just strike me as almost an ideal place for COVID to spread. Um, you know, we have lots of people coming into the dialysis unit in the hospital at the same time. Many of them are elderly with comorbidities. Uh, they're dialyzed pretty close together. Nurses look after more than one patient. So I was just wondering just how, during the years since COVID has come to Canada, how inpatient dialysis units have changed how they operate?
2: So dialysis units certainly are a high-risk environment for the spread of COVID, and many, many changes have been put in place to reduce the likelihood of transmission. To start with, patients are screened for symptoms by phone prior to treatment at the hospital entrance and at the entrance to the dialysis unit, and then once they're in their dialysis chair by a nurse. There are new patient transport protocols. There are changes in waiting room practices and the physical configurations where where there can be. Patients are masked, which is a practice that started early on in dialysis units and really before it caught on more widely. There's more hand washing. Staff are in PPE, including droplet and contact precautions for confirmed and suspected cases. There's a very low threshold for swabbing patients. And during outbreaks or suspected outbreaks, there is a wide surveillance swabbing in the dialysis unit. COVID positive or suspected patients, and also those that are at higher risk, like patients who come in from a congregate setting like a long-term care home, are cohorted or isolated in dedicated rooms or pods or even whole dedicated units. Um, there's been increased spacing of patient treatment stations where that's possible, and education of patients specifically about their heightened risk by virtue of being a dialysis patient. There's about a hundred dialysis units in Ontario, so there's some variation in practices in units to reflect local situations. Um, but the Ontario Renal Network has had a platform for the leadership of these dialysis units across the province to come together frequently and rapidly share practices and put them in place.
0: Another feature of dialysis units that you would notice if you went into one now compared to a year ago and if you stayed around for a while, is not such a nice one. It's the high level of anxiety. In dialysis units which have had a significant amount of COVID infection, the level of stress and the level of anxiety among the staff some extent among the patients as well, of course, is very high. Some of the nurses in dialysis have uh, children at home, have elderly parents at home, whatever. They're at risk and they're uh, very conscious of this. And uh, there has been an element of burnout. I don't think it's anything like what you see in an ICU setting, but it's a little bit of that going on as well. It can be very difficult.
1: I also wondered about the interaction between nurses and patients, because my observation would be that you know, nurses who uh, have been caring for this same person on dialysis three times a, a week for 10 years just get to know them really well and, and spend some time chatting with them uh, beside them when they're getting dialysis. And I could imagine if everybody's all gowned up and, and kind of concerned that some of that interpersonal react, interaction might have
0: been affected as well. Is that true? Absolutely, Uh, spot on. I mean, a a mask alone is enough. Many of us, you know, can't recognize each other, especially if we have a a cap on and a mask on uh, and maybe glasses on anyway, for whatever reason. And so it is difficult. Sometimes I can't recognize the dialysis patient that I've known for years. And certainly the nurses, I can't recognize and It's the same for the patients.
2: And I would just add that from the patient experience, Dialysis in center is a treatment that you get three times a week, typically for for half your day. So you 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 know, you know, the other patients as well. And there is a there is a bit of social interaction. And and that's really limited um, and and out of necessity for for safety reasons. So it it is a very different experience for patients. And when
1: you say that you're screening patients, I would imagine many dialysis patients just have a lot of symptoms, it kind of goes with being on dialysis and having end-stage kidney disease. Do you not get a lot of false positives from
0: those screening questions? That's very true. We did a, a questionnaire study across the province using one of these screening questionnaires. And more than 20% of the dialysis patients answered positively to something. So being unusually fatigued, having a cough, being a bit short of breath, All these things are standard for dialysis patients, so there is limits to the effectiveness. You're quite correct. So
1: with that sort of background and the changes you've made, um, I mean, clearly, I would say necessary, even though it has some sort of negative impact. Tell us briefly about the study you did and and what you learned.
0: Well, right from the beginning of the pandemic, we we realized that uh, dialysis units were going to be a potential problem potential risk setting for patients. We knew this because of stories that had come out of Italy and of course from uh, Wuhan in China. So we decided early on to follow very closely the numbers of dialysis patients and and what happened. what Their clinical course was what happened to them. And we set up uh, weekly calls and we developed a collection tool at the Ontario Renal Network to collect this data. Normally when we try to collect more data, we get a bit of a negative feedback from the programs often. But this one, there was uh, a lot of willingness. People realized quickly we were in a very new and serious situation. And so week after week, it took us a few weeks to get it fully set up. We did it informally initially, and then we had a full-blown spreadsheet that was filled in every week by the uh, data clerk at each, uh, an appointed data person at each site. And we were able to follow this right through the course of the pandemic and indeed right up to the present time. It's still operating. The data that's in the uh, publication is basically the data from wave one of COVID. We we wrote, started writing the paper at the end of August because uh, we thought things had settled down. And by that stage, we had 187 patients who had developed COVID. And we realized we'd quite a special database here because it was comprehensive for the whole province and as near perfect as we thought we could make it. uh, We talked to all the programs regularly and they're very aware of how their patients are doing. So we collected all this data. We asked lots of questions. We wanted to know what happened to these patients, the mortality, the hospitalization rate, the ICU rate. And we found these were, these were very high. We found that over 60% of these patients were getting uh, hospitalized. And, uh, 20% 20% of them were going to ICU and a significant proportion of those were going on a ventilator. And sadly, in the range of just over 28% in wave one died. This was a, a very high, horrific mortality rate. And it became apparent from other parts of the world uh, on single center studies that this was not unique. So we then looked at the risk factors for which dialysis patients were getting this. And, uh, that was interesting. We found uh, some things were very predictable. We found that people who lived in long-term care homes and were on dialysis, that was a pretty, pretty lethal combination. And they had a very high rate of getting this, seven times the rate of people who didn't live in long-term care homes. We also found that people who lived in the Toronto area were at much greater risk of, of getting this in the range of three times the risk. But then we also found that ethnicity was uh, associated with a higher risk. And in particular, being black was associated with three times the risk of getting COVID compared to not being black. For uh, people of South Asian ethnicity, it was about two times, just under two times. And for all other non-Caucasian ethnicities put together, it was twice the risk. So we see these big, big ethnic variations. There was also an income effect where people in lower two quintiles of income based on neighborhood income were twice as likely approximately to get COVID. And then something that's of particular interest to the renal community, Andreas, we found that uh, people who were on in-center hemodialysis were two and a half times more likely than those on home dialysis to catch COVID. So there was a lot of information there, some perhaps predictable, some not maybe so predictable. And the strength of these uh, correlations uh, was quite quite striking, uh, even though our numbers were not huge. These were all significant and and independent each of the other. Thanks for that summary, Peter. And and I was, must admit, when
1: I was looking at the paper, I I thought you know a lot of the risk factors that you described are the ones that we would expect if you live in a crowded home, you know, if you live in long-term care, uh, I think um, it's been well shown in the States and the UK that maybe not in dialysis patients, but that uh, people of Black ethnicity, South Asian ethnicity are much more likely to get COVID and likely to do badly. How has this information, if any, changed the way you provide dialysis or screen patients for dialysis or manage them?
0: Well, Rebecca has already outlined, of course, 10, 12 different ways that standard practices in dialysis units have changed. The observation that long-term care home residents were at particularly high risk was, as you say, no surprise. And quickly, we recognized that in our dialysis units, and these people were given particular attention. They were sequestered in a particular area of the unit, typically, kept well apart from each other. The nurses observed PPE, droplet precautions with them. And in many of the dialysis units where outbreaks were in long-term care homes nearby had been well-recognized, there was surveillance testing. That's an actual swab done once a week, once every two weeks. It varied and on the lowest threshold of symptoms for doing it. So uh, these residents, not only of long-term care homes, but of retirement homes and any other form of congregate living were considered to be a very high-risk population. That was difficult for those people um, to be sort of separated out and given this extra attention, which sometimes was, you know, unpleasant having repeated uh, swabs. But it was felt to be the right thing to do, and they largely consented to do this. So that was a- an example of a, a response to, to this, these observations. We also took the opportunity to push home dialysis as an alternative, especially for people just starting dialysis. And there was quite an interest in that. There there always is some, but a lot of the patients were very keen not to go into the in-center units if they hadn't started dialysis already, or even to get out of them and go to home dialysis if that was on the menu, if it had been been already a part of the plan maybe. And we did actually see in the first three or four months of the pandemic, a sudden spike in numbers doing home dialysis?
2: I would add that um, certainly the finding that in-center patients versus home dialysis patients were more likely to be infected with COVID, it wasn't a big surprise. But being able to quantify that the risk is 2.5 times greater for in-center patients was very, very stark. And, And to Dr. Blake's point, I think we we have seen that there has been an increase in home dialysis and and this is something that uh, the Ontario Renal Network wants to continue to promote. And I I think this could actually prove to be a positive outcome of the pandemic in a way since home dialysis offers patients uh, a higher quality of life and, and equivalent outcomes, not to mention that it's more cost effective for the system. In the context of COVID, we now know that home dialysis is safer too.
1: My sense is that unfortunately, there's a number of people on dialysis who just, I guess, are sick enough that they're not going to be able to, to have home dialysis even if they wanted to. Am I right about that?
2: It's not a treatment for everyone. Yeah. Certainly for those who can, and we're seeing more interest in it now um, during COVID than, than um, in the past, it's a very good option.
1: In some long-term care homes, are they large enough that they have enough people on dialysis that you could actually put a dialysis machine in the long-term care home and dialyze them there?
2: It's a great, great question. And in fact, this is where we're going to increase availability of dialysis inside long-term care homes. It's not uh, common today in Ontario, but certainly a huge opportunity um, to provide dialysis to long-term care home residents right there in their home as a, as a form of home dialysis and avoid the transportation back and forth to a hospital or, or other
0: unit. The particular issue, the limiting factor in some parts of the province is the, there isn't the density, there isn't the number of long-term care home patients in any one nursing home to justify it. But in the greater Toronto area, where there is a great density of population, there, there are some, um, some dialysis units within nursing homes, and there are now a whole lot more being planned. A number of the very large hospitals have put in applications to proceed exactly with what you're saying, given the experience in COVID. And I think that's another thing that may be good that comes out of this. This is a form of home dialysis where these people save them from all the traveling and the risk that goes with it, and indeed save the expense.
1: And what about vaccines? Yeah, I, I would imagine that these folks should be uh, fairly high on
0: the list of getting a vaccine, no? Well, absolutely. And we are advocating very strongly that a group with a mortality in the first wave of 28% almost, and it, such a group of people should be candidates for highest priority status for vaccination. Let me maybe step forward a little bit and say the second wave has come and more people are now getting infected uh, despite all our efforts. The mortality has come down a bit since the first wave, but it's still very high. The overall mortality is 20% approximately at this stage. The mortality rates are very similar to those for long-term care home residents who get COVID, running in that same range in the 20% to 27% in the first wave range. So we think there's a real indication to give this group high priority as well. At this stage, as many as 4% of them have caught the virus. And they also are patients who um, have a high rate, as I've mentioned already, of getting into hospital, getting into ICUs, they're getting ventilated. They bring a big load of healthcare onto the shoulders of the hospital. Furthermore, I think that they're a population that would be relatively easy to, to vaccinate in that they're all in there three times a week, in the, the hemodialysis ones, are in there three times a week in the unit, sitting in their chairs, easily accessible to us to vaccinate. So we, we think this would be a group that really deserve prioritization. I realize lots of people feel they deserve prioritization, but we think the data in this paper and from elsewhere suggests that uh, it's a very good argument. And do you think you're being listened to? I think people are listening and I think they hear it's a good argument, but I think they're under enormous pressure uh, from lots of people. And uh, there's a shortage of vaccine, as we know at the moment, and long-term care is where most of the deaths are occurring. And so they see that, not unreasonably, as the immediate uh, priority. But I, we suggest to them that this population are a very similar story and there's easier access to vaccinate.
1: When you talk to patients, as I'm sure you have, um Are you getting a sense that there's a general eagerness to be vaccinated or is there any vaccine hesitancy
0: or? Yes, there's a general eagerness, but yes, there's vaccine hesitancy. And just in the last few weeks, we have listened to people in some of the Toronto units who have noted that vaccine hesitancy is more common in certain ethnic groups and that this is consistent with findings that have been in the newspapers in the general community, that there are various ethnic groups, including Black patients and South Asian patients who have often a degree of distrust of medical systems and are unsure about it because of understandable reasons, are unsure about vaccination. And this is something that I think it's very important for the renal community to address in the dialysis population. We've been talking a lot about that. Uh, But yes, it it is an issue, you might say, unbelievably, with the mortality that's going on. But yes, it is an issue in a a minority, but a very important minority. And are there plans to sort of address that or connecting with community leaders?
2: I would say, you know, one of the things that the Ontario Renal Network is poised to do very shortly is to do data gathering specifically on vaccination rates in Ontario's dialysis population, as we have done um, about COVID infection in, in the same population. And I think really um, have some data that helps to um, very specifically speak to the point about certain ethnic groups who may be more hesitant about vaccination than others. And and from there, um, with that data in hand, be creative and you know apply some ingenuity working together with the local dialysis units and renal programs to be targeted in addressing vaccine hesitancy in specific groups and, and help get the message to them about vaccination in a way that's most effective for them to hear it.
0: I'll add a, a couple of little anecdotes that I think are important. A number of nephrologists in the front line in, 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 who are really in the front line in the worst affected units tell me that, and this won't be surprising, that when the trust is an issue, but there is trust because sometimes with the staff in the dialysis unit or with the nephrologist. So if you've been seeing a nephrologist for a couple of years or something and a relationship has developed, there's much more likely to be some trust. So an individual approach to a hesitant patient by somebody who, whether it's a nurse or a physician, nephrologist, who has a good relationship, a trusting relationship with that patient can make all the difference. And be prepared to answer the question, doc, did you get vaccinated? Or for the nurse to have to answer that question, because you don't have a whole lot of credibility if you didn't. Um, So this sort of approach. Also, seeing other patients receiving a vaccination, someone you know in the unit and who comes back two days later for the next dialysis and looks just fine, uh, these sort of things are very important to establish a bit of confidence and trust. That's anecdote, but it's it fits in with what one hears in other contexts in healthcare.
1: I guess maybe just um, from my point of view, coming close to wrapping up, I mean, we're recording this on the twenty sixth of January, and we're hearing more and more that the new variants that have arisen in the UK or South Africa are probably in the community in Ontario that must, concern you a lot and must, I guess, probably make you um, even more um, enthusiastic about uh, offering vaccination to all of your patients and presumably the nurses and also the um, the people with whom your dialysis patients live at home.
2: Without a doubt. I mean, we spoke about the long list of, of safety measures that are in place. And, you know, I, I think as we face new variants you know, the continued vigilance of all of the staff working in units is going to be required. I mean, they're incredibly committed. But short of a continued vigilance and vaccination, it's really a reduction in community spread because you can't disassociate numbers of COVID cases in dialysis units from what's happening in the broader community. In wave two, we've seen very few Examples of in-unit transmission, but where the numbers are high, um, really corresponds to where uh, community spread is high. So, vaccination can't come soon enough. Really.
1: Well, you know, on behalf of all the dialysis patients and and people in Ontario, I mean, thanks to the two of you and all people across the province and the country who are caring for people on, on dialysis, and um, you know, obviously, I sort of. Imagine what it would be like to be someone on hospital hemodialysis, and the you know the anxiety that you mentioned, uh, Peter. And and uh, really do hope that people get vaccinated uh, sooner
0: rather than later. Um, any last comments from your point of view? Yeah, Andreas, I would like to. You you've alluded to this, but I'd like to emphasize it also. And maybe Rebecca could comment on this too. The um, renal community. We've always felt in Ontario that we have a renal community, and the Ontario Renal Network is it's a government agency and is in a leadership position in that community, and has greatly helped to strengthen the community by improving the communication between the all the various centres, so they can share the concerns they raise and the issues that uh, they all have to deal with. But I would like to acknowledge. Uh, what exactly as you did, what the staff in these units are going through, what the patients in these units are going through. And also, I would like to acknowledge that in the middle of all this horror show, that they collected the sort of data here with great care that was uh, provided that made this paper possible. This has really been a, a great effort by all of them to collect this data and to record what's happening so that the story gets out there and is understood widely.
2: I would really echo those points. And, and really what I would say is, you know, to be honest, we initiated the collection of this data to share it um, really amongst ourselves within Ontario, the people who are working directly with patients on the front line to understand what the risk was to to them and to other parts of the province, and and uh, you know that was that was sort of job one, and and then from there we did the further analysis and 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 write up of the paper to to share the findings more broadly because it is such a large group of patients with twelve thousand um, dialysis patients in Ontario, and so you know credit to all those working in dialysis units in regional renal programs in Ontario, and, and credit credit to the patients too because it is it is a community as i think we've alluded to in this discussion and you know i think everybody involved just has a tremendous commitment to to keep their heads down and, and to keep working uh, to get through this
1: so on that note i'll thank uh, both of you uh, Rebecca Cooper and Peter Blake if any of the listeners want to read the research uh, it can be seen on uh, cmaj.ca And also, please don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app, and let us know how you think we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Andreas Lopakis, Editor-in-Chief for CMAJ. Thanks very much for listening.